0: I accepted um, whatever happened. It was in God's hands, not my hands. Mm-hmm. You know, it's those moments when you put your child in a mental hospital or when you put them in ICU that you know you're totally not in control, and so you have to just deal moment by moment. And
1: you, I feel like I cut you off. Go ahead, deal moment by moment. Okay.
0: No, I don't.
1: Think,
0: um, yeah, I. You don't think a whole lot, except you know, you just. You're just there waiting.
1: Thank you for stopping by my podcast, Finding God in Our Pain. Welcome. Hi, I'm your host, Sherry Pilkington. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand stories of how the God of the Holy Bible meets real people in their real pain. We look at the good God we profess through the lens of pain and suffering. I'm processing the most painful season of my life after unexpectedly losing Larry, my husband of 32 years. In my journey, I've discovered that there are many types of deaths. Maybe you've asked God how how could you let this happen? Why me? Where are you, God? Do you even care? What am I supposed to do with my life now? Here at Finding God in Our Pain, we don't shy away from the tough questions. I ask them to my guests. I share what I've experienced. We give real examples of how God shows up in the darkest, most painful situations in life. May the stories that you hear and the advice you receive encourage you to engage the heart of God about your painful places or memories or experiences or even your unmet expectations. Lean in close to God's heart because he speaks beautiful things in the dark. Maddie Cepetti, a mother of two, is my guest, and she tells her story with the purpose of encouraging your heart to trust God's faithfulness when life is more than you can handle. She shares her journey of walking both of her children through mental illness and their tragic experiences that set that diagnosis into motion and what lengths a mother will go to to get her children the help they need, and Patty was no exception. She was blindsided by what happened to her daughter when she was only 10 years old, and the fallout constantly challenged Patty's ability to get ahead of the resulting trauma that wouldn't unfold over time. And I don't remember the time frame in relation to her daughter coming to her about what happened and then her son coming forward but in the midst of meeting her daughter's needs her son who is four years younger than her daughter requests to also have professional help like his sister he receives the professional help and yet he follows through with his thoughts of self-harm and Patty finds herself sitting beside her son's hospital bed looking at the countless pieces of machinery not knowing if he'll live through the night Patty's journey into uncharted waters hit her from several sides. Along with her children's level of need, her husband would also be diagnosed with a hole in his heart and endure multiple procedures, each one having the potential to take his life. And her aging parents needed her help as well. And just when you think that would be enough, she herself is diagnosed with PTSD. As our conversation unfolded, it became apparent to me that through every phase of her dark valley, she never questioned God's faithfulness. One of the things that was thought-provoking to me or for me is that she shares how she'd read Job's story, and it would comfort her that her life was not as bad as what Job had endured. Now, that's one way to put perspective in your life. Patty has the sweetest countenance, and you can hear it in her voice. If you think she'd make the sweetest friend, you're right. She has a strong bond with the women that she does life with. And I've met the group of women she's connected to. The whole group, not just a percentage of the women, love well. If you're ever on the Eastern Shore in the Cape Charles area of the Virginia side and you need a kind person to talk to, stop in at Sheridan Church and ask for any one of the women who serve on the WINGS team. And WINGS stands for Women in God's Service. I guarantee you, you'll leave feeling like you were loved on by Jesus himself. Let's listen in to Patty's humble, transparent story of how she navigated mental illness with her children and the uncertainty that life can challenge us with. Welcome, Patty Sapetti, and thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest because you have a powerful message for moms. And some of the topics that we're going to talk about will be mental illness in the context of a chemical imbalance with both of your children. And we'll touch on your PTSD diagnosis that presents itself after years of taking hit after hit. And those hits being both of your children experiencing mental illness challenges. They discover your husband has a hole in his heart at 50. And you shared that you're not expected to live past the age of 21 with this condition. Also, your parents are aging and they need more help and attention than you can provide, but you do. And then your PTSD creeps into the picture. So where I'd like to start is for you to give our listeners a quick glimpse into your foundation because you have a strong Christian background. You traveled the world with your family because of your father's military service, and both your parents were solid believers and they were very active in church wherever you guys were stationed. So share with us the faith environment that you were raised in, including the English-speaking church in Thailand during the Vietnam War with such impressive mission. So welcome, Patty.
0: Uh, thanks, Sherry. Glad to have this opportunity to share my story. And I've shared my story over the years in a lot of church settings. This is the first time to do a podcast. As you mentioned, as a child, uh, we moved every two years, starting when I was about two years old. Guam was the first place we moved to. When I was about 13, 14, we were living in Hawaii, my dad got transferred to Thailand. And my first response is, where is that? I had never heard of that. And anyway, we moved there within a couple of weeks of him getting his orders and it was a very different kind of a place. And I wasn't real thrilled with that at first because I wanted to come back to the mainland U S. So my parents started going to this church And I was very shy and I didn't really want to connect with anybody, but the people were very friendly and loving. The church was run by the international mission board in Richmond, which is sponsored by the Baptist. And the church was full of missionaries. That was their home base. They would go out in the field and other places, but they would come there and congregate. And uh, the teachers there the Sunday school teachers were missionaries. Some of them had PhDs, some of them spoke several languages, some of them were medical doctors and nurses. They were highly trained people. And my friends became their children. And so if we have a slumber party and all of us girls would get together, we'd get out our Bibles and study for Sunday because nobody went to Sunday school without studying, because dad it was gonna be our uncle so and so is gonna be your teacher. So we all studied the Bible together. And my parents uh, we're Bible scholars, and we all read the Bible and discussed it on a regular basis. So I was really blessed, and I didn't even think of it at the time, but after I grew up and realized a lot of people don't read the Bible, I said, I was very blessed at an early age. I was introduced to God's word and, and had a firm foundation of faith from those people and, and their life example, not just reading the Bible, but seeing that some of these people, like one of the doctors was a surgeon. He could have been making a lot of money in the U.S., but he laid down his life for others. You know, he decided that was more important to help people in real need, not, you know, to be at a hospital with rich people to care for everybody. So that example for me was really important. And then, you know, we grew up, moved home to the U.S. and eventually got married. And I worked with a bunch of Christian women. And we would share different kind of books and talk about Bible and things like that. And this one girl gave me this book called How to Live Like a King's Kid by Harold Hill. It was a very simple book, but he believed the Bible just like it was written. And so some of my traditional teachings, I was like, wow, the Bible says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, God still heals today. So he kind of enlarged my understanding in my faith walk in his little book. Each chapter in his book was like a life experience where he'd experienced God doing a miracle in his life. and So that became part of my life experience too. Fast forward to when I became an adult and my Christian walk, because I did get baptized in Bangkok and accepted Jesus. And he was my savior, but I cannot say that he was my Lord, because I was kind of a willful person for some years until I realized I needed to give everything over to Jesus. And that's one of those daily things. We still like to control things no matter how old we get. So I have to remind myself that he's in charge, not me.
1: I think that's the regeneration process, too, is once you accept Christ, you have salvation. But then there's this process of growing in intimacy with him and therefore turning our life over to actually make him the Lord of our life. I don't think that's so strange. Now, I'm not saying God can't be supernatural and somebody is immediately wholehearted, 100% giving their life to Christ. He is the Lord. I, I do hear that happen. But I'd like to think, only because it happened to me and you, that the norm is a growing process into that intimacy and the Lord of our life. When I hear you talk about such powerful ways of being equipped in life, because the word does not come back void at such a young age, you're reading the word. There's an imprint that's being made on your heart and on your mind of God's power and his word. So do you feel like it made you naive in the church setting? And if so, in what way?
0: Oh, yeah. You know, that's a really good question. And I, I want to back up to my after I grew up and I didn't just work with uh, Christians. I got married and had kid, children, but I married a non believer because, like I said, I, I wasn't really under God's Lordship. And that was a rocky road, but I can uh, humbly say that we made it. You know, we went through the bumpy road. And I'm so glad because he was very supportive of our kids. And uh, we just celebrate 50 years of marriage. But the thing about being naive is I'm not really naive about everybody. However, when I was going to the missionary church, missionaries are very dedicated, wonderful, God-fearing people for the most part. There could be a bad apple here and there, but they're rare because they're screened and that's their dedication. When you come back and you go to regular churches that are run by all kinds of people or have all kinds of members, you know, they'll say 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And, you know, some people come to church and they don't really know Jesus. They're there for a social experience. They're there for different reasons. And I think I had this upbringing of, I was around good people. So when there were some not good people around, I would just go, maybe they're having a bad day Or, you know, we're all in church together trying to learn and be better. So I allowed for different kind of behavior based on the fact that, you know, my experience was different. And so sometimes I was naively accepting, especially in the church setting.
1: I've. Can relate to that about allowing people certain behaviors, thinking that they're just having a bad day because aren't we all in church? Aren't we all after the same thing? How did you fall victim to someone in the church?
0: That is exactly it. I was in church and all of us have inside ourselves this little, I don't know, warning button. And sometimes we can ignore our intuitions. And I was more ignorant, you know, like, even if someone might not rub me the right way, I would say I have to be allowing for them. They're in church. We're learning to be better. And so when people would behave badly in church, I would give them extra grace. I didn't expect that for maybe work people because they come from all over, but church people, I gave them extra grace. And so when a person, an an adult individual uh, befriended my 10 year old I have two children they're both adults now with kids of their own but they're four years apart my older child was 10 at the time and she was very smart precocious and I was in choir practice and she was bored and she liked to learn all kinds of things so this the person that ran our technology equipment offered to show her how to use the computer and I'm like good that will occupy her while we're having choir practice, and it would never have occurred to me that that was, that they would be doing anything else because, and in my own family too, the men were very well behaved and we didn't have any kind of strange behavior in our family either. So my daughter came home one night and she said, I want to tell you a secret and you, have, you can't tell anybody. And I said, well, I thought she's going to tell me that she liked some kid or something, you know, a 10-year-old kind of a secret. And and I said yes before I knew what it was. And then when she began to share what happened to her, she started crying. She got very hysterical. And I said, I, I have to talk to somebody, you know, and she said, you promised, you promised it. I felt like I couldn't break her trust at that moment. I also wondered if anybody but would believe what happened to her, The inappropriate thing this man did, and he was fifty years old, and she was ten, so there was no way that she would encourage any kind of behavior from him, because I've been asked all kinds of questions about that. So I want to make it clear that, you know, she was just a ten-year-old wanting to learn how to use a computer, right? And and I, I uh, was shocked, and I said, I I even asked her, did anybody else ever treat her this way? I was like you know, any relatives or anything? Oh, no, no. She was just really shocked that I would even suggest such a thing. And I said, well, then you know that it's not right for someone to treat you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. And she did, you know, and I said, I will talk to this person and he won't bother you anymore. And I did, but I didn't ask a lot of intimate questions because I didn't realize how bad it was. And, and I just made sure that he left her alone. And I protected her from ever being alone in his company again. <clears throat> the other thing I didn't understand was that it would change her personality. She'd been very assertive and self-assured and she became kind of nervous and withdrawn over a period of time. It didn't happen like in a day. It was just I just watched her kind of get, you know, upset easier and then she eventually got sick.
1: Let me ask yeah. you a question real quick. I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to ask you this question. And what did this, and I would say molestation to your daughter, do to your faith? Because while she's been physically, emotionally, and mentally assaulted, I tend to feel like as a mom, you too experienced a level of that as well.
0: Yes. When your children hurt, you hurt. Yeah. Initially, I was very angry that this man you know, would do something like this. And also to be violated in church, that was like the ultimate betrayal, a place you're supposed to feel safe. So yes, I, yeah. So it, when you, it does kind of, you know, when, when it's your kid, it affects you very strongly too. So I, I'm clear that I was not the victim, but by watching my child, it affected me long range also.
1: Yeah, because I was thinking that, The fallout is bigger than just what has happened to your daughter because it impacts everyone around her, those who love her and care for her, and so it impacts them. Were you able to separate this man's actions from God? Because I would say separate it from the church, but the church is filled with people who do not always represent God well, so I'll let the man represent the church and ask you directly about God. Did you blame God in any way for what happened to your daughter? Because just like you said, it's the Lord's house. And many would say should have been under God's watchful eye. I've heard that before.
0: No, I don't really think that way. No, I think if I ever did feel that way, I would probably would have just been a dropout, which there have been periods of time where I didn't go to church. But no, I never felt like that was God's fault in any way. Each one of us is responsible for our own behaviors and actions. So, you know, we we all just, I would say we all make mistakes, but that's not a mistake. It's
1: an on purpose. It seems to me too, that your default was not to be mad at God. So that really speaks to that pouring in of God's word and of God's relationship and of God's intimacy. Would you say that? you were at a place of intimacy with God yet because I know my Valley dark Valley brought me to a whole new level of intimacy with God how would you Define your relationship with God at this point are you a believer where he's given you salvation and not yet made have you made him the Lord of your life yet can you remember that far back
0: I would say uh I was a strong believer whether or not he was totally Lord I don't know if I can even say that today sometimes but I will tell you my struggle was forgiveness mm. and how do you forgive someone that does that how do you forgive yourself for being not even allowing it to happen and that was something I had to think about for several years and when other people would talk about forgiveness or would there be a Bible study or a lesson on forgiveness I would just kind of that they understand how hard it is and and I know there have been people that have had Many worse things happen in their lives. You know, I know families of murder victims and things like that, but forgiveness is a, a hard, that's a hard thing, no matter what your level of closeness is. And that was, some, that was a struggle I had for some years.
1: That is a bitter pill to swallow when you've seen one of your loved ones be harmed or hurt in any way, shape or form, especially a mama's heart, like a bear. How did you come to this place of forgiveness? How did you forgive yourself?
0: <laughs> I think I still work on that sometimes. Yeah. Um uh, I think you know we we are not all knowing, all seeing and and I think we have to say forgiveness is we know that we've been forgiven and we have to forgive others including ourselves and give ourselves a little Extra grace because we're all in this world, but we're not of it. And we have to live in it as best we can know how. As far as forgiving a guilty person, I had to figure out that I could be at peace with not having a lot of strong feelings against that person, but also say to myself, that doesn't mean I have to have a relationship with the person. I can just let it go and not think about them anymore.
1: And that's a good point too. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean uh, reconciliation. And so you can forgive and keep that distance. But I often think of when I hear the story of forgiveness or think about the topic of forgiveness, I think about Joseph who was sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, second man to Pharaoh and he forgives his family, but they're not present in this forgiveness process. It's a forgiveness journey that's personal and intimate between him and God. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I like to know that you don't have to necessarily work it out with the person in order to arrive at a place of forgiveness. It can be just between. possible. Yeah, that's not always possible. And people who are guilty should be held accountable for their actions. So Mm -hmm. forgiveness doesn't alleviate their responsibility and their actions either. It's not agreeing with what they did.
0: Well, I will say since you brought up the accountability, we didn't take action uh, right away. But some years later, when we heard that another child was victimized, <clears throat> my daughter agreed to testify. So this happened when she was ten, and she testified when she was sixteen. Wow. and he he was incarcerated and held accountable for his actions against her and another uh, child. Uh, So, you know, he did have to pay for what he did. And uh, she also allowed me to go before the Virginia State Crime Commission and give a testimony that made the news because we didn't have Megan's Law in Virginia at that time. And we didn't want him to get out in the community, not be aware if there was a dangerous person. So we do now have Megan's law in Virginia, partly because of my daughter's story.
1: That's incredible. What bravery that took for her as well as you to make a difference for other yeah. children. So that's yeah, quite.
0: She just, her position was I could talk about it. She just didn't want to be there. You know, right. so she yeah. permitted me cause I, you know, when I made her the promise to keep silent, I kept that promise until she released me from it.
1: Right. That's beautiful. Oh, and that torn. was
0: hard to do because I didn't, you know, I wanted to do the right thing
1: by her and other people. Right. What a torn position to be in. I can't even imagine. Mm. And then God works it all out. I love that about him. Backing up just a little bit, because one of the things that I hear most often when people go through things that are outside of their reality or past experiences, or even their current skill set to handle is, I did all the wrong things. And you mentioned that you did some wrong things. So how did that impact you? What would you consider the wrong things?
0: Oh, in some things I look back and I say, was it really wrong? I didn't do certain things because uh, I didn't realize what happened to her was a crime. In fact, I just knew it was inappropriate. I didn't know it was a crime until several years later when we were interviewed by the police. So I'm not sure if I would have made a report sooner or not had I known that. So I can't say I knowingly did a wrong thing. I was just trying to protect her and I did not, I was not aware that it was a crime. And for anybody out there that's listening and, you know, has had. Been treated in an inappropriate way, or your child has, you should kind of research and get the facts because there's no statute of limitations on that kind of crime, on sexual assault. There's no statute of limitations. So it doesn't matter if it happened a long time ago. And some people are still afraid to talk about that. And I've talked to many women and tried to encourage them, even if they didn't go get legal, to get some sort of therapy help. But Yeah, those are the things I didn't know that I didn't act on and I didn't know that what happened to her, this incident would make her ill Mm. Uh, or I might've taken action sooner if I'd understood that.
1: Yeah, because she goes on to go through many phases of illness uh, that stemmed from this experience with this man. How old is your daughter now? Uh, She's in her forties. And living a full life. I would say so. Let me go
0: back to let me, I guess get the timeline because as I said, as I mentioned, she got sick. She actually contracted an illness called Epstein Barr virus, which is like mononucleosis. And her whole immune system got weak. And another thing I learned many years later is that when you are treated like that, it takes your identity as a person. It takes your innocence and your identity. You're no longer self-assured. And, you know, uh, when she was little, she would get 99 in standardized testing. And when she went to school, when she got older and she got a 95, she was crying. She goes, I'm not smart anymore. I'm like, 95 is not that bad, you know, and you're older now. But I couldn't convince her. She was really, you know, she had lost her identity as a person. And so anyway, she got this virus and she was sick for a year. And she would get strep throat every week, and she wasn't even going anywhere. And we had her on constant medicines. And eventually, she did get uh, better from that, regained some of her physical health. And I didn't realize that there was still stuff going on, because we just didn't talk about this incident very much at that time. And I, I had stayed home with her while she was sickly, and i went gone back to work. And I wasn't back to work more than a few weeks. when. I realized something else was wrong. And I suggested that she might need to talk to somebody about this thing that happened a long time ago. That's what we call it, the thing. And I convinced her to to sit with me and a counselor and just vaguely, you know, provide some information. And then she agreed to, to have the counseling alone without me in the room. And she wrote on a piece of paper what happened to her. And I, you know, the counseling was going on for a week or two. And I stopped the counselor and I said, how's it going? And the counselor said, she needs professional help. And I said, well, who should I take her to? And he said, she needs to be in the hospital. And I was like, what? You know, I was really shocked. And so he told me what to do and where to take her. And we were interviewed by a social worker at a hospital. And she got in the hospital that fast. And, and like I said, you know, there's a lot of things I didn't know. So I was taking her for a, a walk the next day in the hospital, and she confessed to me that she had wanted to take her life.
1: Mm.
0: And I didn't know that either. right. But she didn't do it.
1: Yeah. And
0: so uh, she got this uh, medical attention at the hospital. And after a week, she was released. and if anybody knows anything about mental health when you, it's like uh, emotional open heart surgery. You don't come out well. You come out with lots of medicines and very fragile and, you know, with a lot of things you still have to work through and you have to have outpatient therapy after you spend that time in the hospital, finally dealing with your issues. So she came out of the hospital in this very fragile condition. And the next day, her best friend got killed in a car accident. My oh, goodness! And mm-hmm. at 16, you know, and it was shortly after that that we had to do all this testifying, but this timeline made life very stressful for our whole family.
1: What were you asking God about right in the middle of all this? What was your biggest why question for God?
0: I don't think I was talking to God a whole lot. And I was, it was like putting out fires and just, mm. you know, asking other people to pray and help us because I was just focused on trying to help her.
1: And When you look back, do you see God moving in those areas, maybe putting those people in place to pray for you?
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. Yes, we had a lot of uh, wonderful friends who prayed. And one of the things that God did that I can look back and see, I I, I lost a job. And I got a phone call uh, from a lawyer friend of mine that said he lost a receptionist and he needs something in his office. And my first response was, I don't know anything about legal work. And I ended up working there for four years. It was during that time that we had all these issues. I got legal advice all day long for free. Nice. So God put me where I needed to be. And, and it was a Christian law office. that We were friends, not just coworkers. Or he was not just my boss. And he knew our circumstance. So God put me in a place where I could get what I needed when I needed it. Wow. And also be able to use that legal advice to help other people later on. So, yes, I had my prayer warrior friends. I was in a job that was beneficial to what was going on in our lives. And my husband had become a believer during that time, too. So it was a struggle for all of us. And as I shared with you privately during all of this, we we have two kids and our younger son, who's four years younger, was also suffering. He loved that girl that died. And saw what was our daughter suffering and was angry too. And we didn't realize that chemical imbalance can run in our family. And, you know, we don't treat people differently if they say they have diabetes. Well, that's a chemical imbalance and it can affect a lot of things in your body. Well, a chemical imbalance in the brain affects your behavior and affects Mm -hmm. the way you think and act about things. And so, and it's the chicken or the egg kind of a thing, you may already have it, or a circumstance can cause your chemicals to get altered. So you don't always know what where the things are, but there's triggers. And while we were trying to help our daughter and she was dealing with all these issues, our son also got sick. And when you have teenagers getting problems, you don't they don't react the same as adults. The stereotype of a mental health person is, you know, if you're depressed, you're sitting alone in a dark room. My kids never did that. They had a lot of friends. They were going places. They were socially active. They never kind of withdrew from society. They just, it, it's like the, I don't know, I don't, this is really funny, not a good comparison, but like the functional alcoholic. They go to work every day. They do all the things. And then on the inside, they're miserable and hurting. Mm-hmm. So my kids were miserable and hurting on the inside, but other people didn't know. And I didn't know. And my son didn't manifest the same way as my daughter. And uh, except that he was failing everything in school, including driver's ed. Now, teenage boys do not fail driver's ed. That's fun. you
1: know. Right. Um, That's freedom.
0: And, yeah. And so one day when we discuss why he's, you know, he was like 14 and struggling with all this stuff. And he said, he wanted to talk to our daughter's doctor. And I said, that's a psychiatrist. And he said, yes, that's the one I need. He knew, but we didn't know. And it wasn't long before he was in the hospital also. And with severe depression and the doctor gave him a different kind of medicine. It was very expensive. So I asked for samples because I couldn't afford it. So he gave me when they give you samples, they give you a lot of it. So he, loaded me up with all these samples and I brought them home and I put them on the kitchen counter and I said, "Okay, take this every day, you'll be fine." Like your sister, you know. But he was a boy and he didn't want to do that. It's embarrassing to take medicine and have, you know, a weakness kind of thing and and he went back to school and he couldn't cut it. And so he came home one day and he took all of it.
1: Oh no.
0: And when I realized what happened, I rushed him to the hospital and he went into a coma. And the first nurse that was taking care of him, she wasn't very nice. She just saw this teenage boy that had done something stupid. And she, I asked if he was going to be okay. And she said, I don't know. You know, and I just prayed, Lord, get that woman away from my son. Yeah. He's not going to make it, you know, I at least want someone to care. And I went to call my girlfriend and I said that I was losing him. And she said, Oh no, you're not. Cause I'm going to pray. And so I went back and I heard the doctor and he said, well, I don't know what was wrong with her, but I, he kicked out this, this nurse, she moved too slow for him. And so she was gone. And the next nurse that came in by then he's hooked up life support and everything. And, and the next nurse said, I know what he really needs. And I'm looking at all this fancy equipment. And I said, well, whatever else it is. And she said, he needs prayer and I'm going to pray for him all night. Hmm. And I knew my friend at home was praying. I knew this nurse and her friends were praying. And so I didn't know if our son was going to make it, but I knew he was in good hands.
1: Mm -hmm. So when you're as mama, you're sitting there looking at your son hooked up to all that equipment and you have that confidence and that peace that he's in good hands. Did you have anything that you laid down for God? I guess your son's life in that moment. What did you lay down in that moment?
0: I accepted whatever happened. It was in God's hands, not my hands. You know, it's those moments when you put your child in a mental hospital or when you put them in ICU that, you know, you're totally not in control. And so you have to just deal moment by moment and you don't think a whole lot, except, you know, you just, you're just there waiting.
1: In a moment like that, I see the investment in the foundation. For you to be able to stand strong in the midst of that, that battering really on a mama's heart, just constant battering, but you still hanging on to the lifeline, confident that he's in control, especially when we're not. But is there any control on our behalf? Uh, Well, maybe to make our own choices and things like that, responsible for our own choices, but God's in control.
0: Yeah. Yeah. you become very aware that you're totally not in control. And you know, if you, it doesn't matter what kind of serious illness, when you go to the hospital and everybody, the medical profession takes over, you, you don't have much to say. except you're, you're in their hands and you're in God's hands.
1: It's comforting to know though, that doctors are in God's hands as well. Like
0: when I pray for people that are in a medical situation, I always pray that doctors are given godly wisdom in making these decisions.
1: Yes. Anytime I know one of my family, friends, whatever, going into surgery, I always pray that the equipment is operable, the tools are clean and available, that there's no animosity between the team because you know sometimes they don't get along well. I pray that the doctor's hands are actually God's hands. His wisdom and discernment is God's wisdom and discernment. So I can see you praying all those things over your your children as well
0: of course he got better Mm -hmm. but his episode was kind of the straw for me
1: Mm. you know in what way
0: well I kind of reached a point I had mentally gotten to this place where I said I can't handle any more bad things
1: right
0: bad things probably will continue to happen but I can't handle them and so I sort of had a meltdown and at that point and I Started really struggling emotionally, their mental health began to affect mine then. And it was after that, that my husband was diagnosed with this hole in his heart. And he was went through several catheterizations. One's pretty serious. He's had five. And they finally figured out that they could put a plug in the hole. And he's doing good now. Awesome. But at that time, it was like, you know, Sick husband, sick kids, lots of medical bills. <laughs> and I had uh, one place tried to sue us because my daughter's insurance wasn't paying off very quickly. And we finally got through that. But, you know, when you talk about uh, physical, emotional health stress, sometimes people forget about the financial stress that it also puts you under. And I've always been the person that paid the bills. So. All those things took a toll.
1: You were shouldering that as well. And your parents are aging and they need more attention, more time, more help. So now you have that. What indicated to you that you needed help yourself? Was it progressively growing? You said that the body has alarm systems and I agree with that. Is that something that kept setting off? You kept getting uh, an alarm in the body or did a friend say, hey, something's going on here with you?
0: Well, I began to realize something was wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was. I started crying and I couldn't stop. Mm, yeah. I would wake up crying. I'd go to sleep crying. You know, it was like constant and it lasted for months. It wasn't like for a week or a day or something. I was always weeping. And even now I can be a little emotional sometimes, but it's not where I can't control it. My lawyer boss had a bunch of self-help books that he gave out to people who were struggling with different issues and i read them all <laughs> and, and i was talking to a friend one day and i said do you think i'm depressed or there's something you know wrong with me and and she said well you're reading all those books are they helping you and i said no no the books aren't helping they're they're good books but they aren't you know they're not making me better and she suggested i needed to see someone and but I'm a DIYer about everything, and I was, and I didn't really trust. I didn't want to talk about this, all these circumstances anymore. And so, instead of going right away to a professional, I decided I'd go online and take a test, <laughs> multiple choice depression test, and I failed it. At the bottom of the test, it said, "Print this off and go immediately to a medical professional."
1: Oh goodness. Well, I
0: can look back on that and kind of laugh at the silliness of me doing that. But then I called a a Christian counselor that I was friends with and who had known some of my circumstance. So I wouldn't have to go through the whole story again. And he said to come in and he was a very wise man. And he I handed him the test and right away I started crying because that's what I did about everything. And he said, let's go through this test again And he gave me a better grade. (laughs) And we just kind of chuckled about that. And then he said, you know, I believe you have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I said, isn't that what men get in the war? Because back then, not too many people talked about that. And he said, haven't you been in a war? And I said, well, I guess since you mentioned it. And so he talked to me and he told me I should go to my medical doctor and tell them what was going on. They already knew a little bit because they treated the children. So uh, I ended up going on the oh, no. same medication as one of my kids, and it really helped a lot. And uh, I had to stay on Some people have said, "Are you sure you had that?" Yes, I was officially diagnosed by a doctor because mm. <laughs> I wouldn't have figured that out on my own.
1: Well, and me included, until I learned differently that PTSD is associated with military war service. But mm. no, it's outside of that as well—mental, emotional damage, if you will, collateral. Because it is interesting to me that the body can even heal from broken bones, bruises, surgery, but yet there is a mental and emotional toll that it could potentially take on the body. And that needs to be addressed as well. Otherwise, we just hide it away, tuck it down into the body somewhere, stuff it down, and then the body pays for it, such as an example, your daughter, not that she was stuffing anything down, but it it does wear on the body as well. It can physically manifest itself. So I'm so glad that you were able to consider yourself in the process of this war zone, And then get help for that. What sort of conversations were you having with God during your diagnosis? Because I think you said even your memory was suffering during this PTSD.
0: I forgot to mention that was one of the symptoms. Besides being upset a lot, was I couldn't. I I lost my short term memory, and I still have some blanks at that time. And if anybody in the military is listening, I don't want to diminish because some people have been through much worse things. PTSD is like any other kind of illness and that there's different degrees so you can have a far worse case than I did but I still had a case of it and it was not pleasant to be in that mental state for all that period of time and uh, but but there is light at the end of the tunnel and you can get help so I encourage people if you're struggling with your emotions and you feel like you know you can't see light in a tunnel to find find a Christian counselor and get some help. But as far as my prayer time, I don't know. I, I think I'm a much better prayer warrior now than I was then. And a lot of times I was like, so in the middle of the situation, I was just asking other people to pray because uh, yeah. I didn't always know how or what to pray for.
1: The power of prayer. Did you have a scripture you were hanging on to at that time or anything that would come to you? Does God send you a song, send you scripture?
0: Well, I got songs or everything, but I have to chuckle when you ask me the scripture question, because somebody asked me that. What's the scripture you cling to? And I said to that person, I read the book of Job a lot. <laughs> I said, Gosh. at that time, I was like, I would read it and it'd be like a soap opera. Well, my life isn't that bad yet. <laughs> I don't have boils and blisters. So poor Job, he actually encouraged me and he he knew at the end he was going to see God. I don't read the book of Job so much anymore. I like the whole Bible. I like I'm more inclined to like Revelation. But yes, and you know, there have been scriptures that have been beneficial. And the first scripture I learned was John 3 16 when I was a six-year-old. And so I knew that Jesus loved me and I know he loves me still. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of interesting. Cause I actually did a-
1: get asked that. You had the courage to go look at Job and you did make me chuckle when you're comparing his life to yours and you're like, no, I'm still good. I'm still good. <laughs> it did go physically, mentally, emotionally. Like you saw him struggle all the way through and on every level.
0: With more and more and more and and it like, finally, it was like, what did I do to deserve this? You
1: know? Did you uh, ever ask God that?
0: Not really. Like I said, it was interesting reading Job because I would say, you know, there's a lot of people going through a lot worse than me.
1: That's true. But you might be able to tolerate something that I could never tolerate. And so mm-hmm. it would be horrifying to me. And yet you would be like, no, no, we let's move forward. We can do this kind of thing. Mostly, I think it speaks to your faith. That foundation. It comes back to that foundation of being able to walk strong, be able to walk with courage in the midst of such, in my opinion, horrifying life experiences. Do you have any regrets when you look back over all that you've navigated? Uh, I don't know. <laughs>
0: uh, I wish today I had a closer relationship with my two adult children, but they've, because of all the bad things, they've sort of predestined. Rejected the traditional church for now, but I do believe the covenant that you know when you're saved, your whole household is saved, mm-hmm. and so I do expect that God will bring them back around at some point. And the other thing is, I was brought up in a, a an environment of facade. It didn't matter what you were going through, what was happening when you got into the church building. People would say, "Good morning, how are you?" and the response was. I'm fine. (laughs) And I was far from fine quite often. But that was what I did for a long time. And I had to learn to say, you know, it's okay today. But yesterday wasn't so good. You know, I was not fine. And I had to learn to tell myself and other people that and if they didn't get it, that was not my problem.
1: That's very good that you bring that up because it sounds like there was a big transition for you when you opened your mouth and confessed to a friend, do you think something's wrong? I'm over here struggling. I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at this, I'm doing that, and something's not right. So once you got out of the dark, if you will, with what was going on, then you had a friend give you advice that led you into a a, a good place. Because I think she even spoke of, Then this is from a previous conversation you and I had about your mama heart. Like you had fear and you felt guilty because you're a Christian.
0: Yeah, that was another person that wasn't the same person. But yes, I I went to someone besides asking my friend if there was something wrong with me. And she definitely agreed there was. Then I was on this retreat and I went to this leader who was counseling at this retreat. And I said, "I, I have a problem. And of course, most people thought I was fine because I was used to saying I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I told her that I was terribly afraid and I felt guilty that I was afraid. And I, and I said, I can't be more than 30 minutes away from my kids because I figured in my in my mixed up mental health thing that in 30 minutes I could fix it. You know, if I could get, get there within 30 minutes, whatever it was, if they had a problem they couldn't cope with. And. Then my daughter moved three hours away <laughs> Goodness, and I was really afraid then. And so this lady said, you know, it's okay to be afraid with what you've been through. And I said, well, I'm supposed to be full of faith, not fear." And she said, well, that's your mother's heart. And so she said, you know, she more or less said in so many words that I didn't have to feel guilty anymore about being afraid. And so I went away with that burden lifted. And I was still afraid, but I wasn't feeling guilty about it anymore. So that helped that. And that was a really hard confession to make even privately to one person, because sometimes strong people don't want to admit they have weakness. But eventually, God healed the fear part too, as well. That just took longer.
1: How did you address that with him? Did you confess? Did you lean into scripture? <laughs> did you just have an ongoing conversation with him to kind of dig around in why you were fearful? Or did you just submit it to him and let him work?
0: Well, I knew why I was fearful. I thought I was going to lose both of my children to suicide. And you don't always know. The fear thing was very simple for me. I was afraid that that something would happen that they couldn't cope with. That's what our son, he couldn't cope. And before he could call anybody, he took action. And there was nothing I could do to control that, you know. And so we did have a conversation with the kids And we all went to sort of family therapy. And we said, look, if you have a problem and you can't cope, it's your responsibility to tell us. And then it's our responsibility to try to help you deal with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you don't tell us, we don't know. We're not mind readers. And so I would tell anybody that's dealing with suicidal family members, that's all you can do. And then the rest has to go to God or, and you have to have peace that you've done all you can do. And there's times when that person is going to make it. And there's times when, you know, something bad's going to happen and you have no control over that.
1: That's a huge thing to stare in the face of and have to make sense of it or make peace with it. How did you make peace with that knowledge, that reality that it could happen? I mean, your son did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he did try, but he recovered. We, you know, we can't fix ourselves. Only God can heal what's inside of us. So how do we think we can fix anybody else? True. You know, we can just be there for them, communicate as best we can, and admit that we make mistakes or we don't hear, right? You know, if you're talking with someone in a counseling kind of way, you can ask for feedback. If you you know, when they speak to you, is this what you meant? Or is this what I heard? Or, you know, and beings were on the suicide thing. One of the rules is, if a person is feeling those feelings and having those thoughts, they have to say to you, I promise you, if I get bad, I'll tell you. Now, if they can't make that promise, then you got a problem and they need to get to the doctor right away. But most people, even when they're having those kind of struggles, they can say that, you know, yes, like before I take any kind of wrong action, I'll call you. Or I'll call somebody else, you know, it needs to be more than one person they feel like they can communicate with.
1: That's a good point too, because what if they can't reach the one person?
0: Yes, we actually did that one time. My daughter, when she moved away, she was having a struggle and the doctor asked her, who she'd call. And she said, Oh, I'll call my mom. And I was like, oh, what if I don't answer the phone or I couldn't get there? And so I said, let's put some more people on the calling list. And we agreed that there were several other people that she could contact if she had struggle that she couldn't cope with.
1: And what would you suggest to a parent as far as therapy for themselves while their children are going through therapy? Is that a tool you used?
0: Yes, most definitely because you can go to group and family therapy and and that helps your whole family but individually there may be things that you need to talk about or share or think about that you that need to be private it has to be someone that's not here in the rest of the situation that can just help you with your problem
1: cuz there are things that your child probably wants to say in private and there are things that you want to say in private so that seems very beneficial
0: Yeah, and the same counselor can't necessarily counsel the whole family. You can do it as a group, but individually you may need a separate counselor. Uh, And I do recommend a Christian counselor because we recognize that a lot of things in our life are caused by sin. Secular counselors would not do that, and their perspective is different. They might let you make more excuses and not hold you accountable for things that we know that would alter the situation. Also, I would say this to someone who is maybe struggled and because I've talked to a lot of people and I know some people have never sought professional help and needed it, you can go into a counselor and set up a hypothetical situation. So let's say you were a victim a long time ago, you've never talked to anybody, but you're afraid if you go to a counselor, they might report it. You can go in and say, I have this friend, or if I told you about this situation that happened a long time ago and it's not going on now, would you need to report it? And they will tell you yes or no, what the rules are. And some people will tell you I'm a mandated reporter. That means if you tell them you're in a harmful situation or you're going to harm yourself, then they're required by law to make a report. So you can ask those questions before you tell your story. If you feel like the counselor is not trusting or going to keep your confidence, then get another counselor. You have to be able to sort of ask these general questions before you get into particulars. But that's one way to try to get yourself some help and
1: just get some things off your chest. I see the value of that saying it is a hypothetical situation to feel them out as to what you share to a certain degree in order to find out if they are mandated to report or not. And I also like, through my years of therapy, the Christian uh, perspective. I mean, they're trained the same as far as licensed and whatnot as, in psychiatry, but I love the spiritual value of the Christian therapist because they do have a set of moral convictions that we all agree with as believers or that we can all understand and come to an agreement in uh, the process of of delving into some very difficult territory and very traumatic experiences yeah uh,
0: I think a secular counselor when I went with the guilt fear thing probably wouldn't have connected with me they wouldn't understand how this important the faith factor is in my perspective
1: mm-hmm. and
0: was at that time there's a there's a place in Richmond I don't know if it's still called this but it used to be called Christian counselors training Center <clears throat> and it was in Richmond. and I uh, and we abbreviated it CCTC. Well, you could go to their place and they train counselors and you could go sit in on one of their sessions where they'd have a room full of people, it's like a school for counselors. If you had a problem when they're training the counselors, you could also get help for your problem because they would put up different scenarios. So, and I went one time in with a friend cuz we were learning about some certain things and about forgiveness and things and they have topics they address. And that was very helpful to me to get some perspective on certain things. That's huge. Yeah. So if you, you might want to check it out, I'm pretty sure it's still there. I don't know if they call it that now.
1: Okay. That'd be an awesome resource for people.
0: It's a program you, you sign up for, if you want to learn to be a counselor. So there is a cost. I don't know that they allow free auditing, Okay. You can go there and they don't need to know that you're there for yourself or for the class. In the psychiatric setting, there's some programs called RAFA, God is our healer, mm-hmm. but they're not at every hospital. And there's a new, the CHKD in Virginia Beach is getting ready to build a big psychiatric facility.
1: Nice.
0: And I think that's really, really needed because for children, there's not as much opportunities and places for them to go and get help. And another place to contact is NAMI, which is, uh, it's a mental illness support group. Mm -hmm. It's all across the United States and they have different groups in different places. And they used to have face-to-face meetings, but then COVID hit, but sometimes they'll have zoom meetings. And a lot of them, Mm -hmm. uh, I I participated in one, but they were talking about teenagers and I'm past that now. So you can get into a NAMI support group and that is free.
1: And that's National Alliance on Mental Illness, N-A-M-I.
0: Yes. Okay, that's Um, a great resource. If you connect with a NAMI group, or you can look them up on the web. Then you can get the support needed as a parent. You can also work on getting your child help if they need help.
1: That's a great resource. uh, It's affordable. That's key. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's, yes, because mental health is very expensive. And insurance companies don't pay as much for that as they do for other kind of illnesses.
1: Isn't that the strangest thing? That is strange to me. I follow several military groups uh, that I support, and th- they talk about the suicide rate mm-hmm. with our military men and women. And they don't get the help that they need. It's just so frustrating Yeah. to watch that experience and then end in end of life in the process of not having resources and not having uh, help that they mm-hmm. need. Patty, you've been wonderful. When I listen to your story, something really sticks out for me. Earlier, I used the word naive when I referred to the grounding that you received, uh, your foundation in faith. But now when I listen to your story, it actually prepared, grounded, and rooted you in all that you would need to survive and thrive in a broken world. So I am deeply uh, appreciative for you taking that time and to also know that your children are both grown adults with families and living a full life and addressing any needs and mental, emotional needs that pop up. And did you have anything you want to add to that before we close? Is there anything I have not asked you about that you'd like to share?
0: I think that's uh, really true that God did prepare me for the journey that we would have to take. And I am proud of my children that they are highly functional And they do know they take responsibility for their actions and they're very good parents, uh, very attentive to their kids. So I'm glad that they were able to move on past the, the teenage traumas and achieve their goals. My daughter has a very good job with the government. Our son Does electrical and handyman kind of work, and he lives in the out of doors, which you know he likes to go hiking in the mountains and that sort of thing. So they do what they need to manage their own health issues, and that's really great, you know, that they're they were able to get past some of it. And I know some people are still struggling with children that even as older adults still need a lot of personal help from others. And I'm very happy that my kids. While they don't get in touch much, I, I people ask, you know, does that bother you? And I said, no news is good news, but they know that my husband and I both would take their call if they had a problem and we needed to support that. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. Mental health is a lifelong thing and communication is a lifelong thing that we all need to keep striving to communicate better with others and see, you know, when you ask someone how they are and they say they're fine. Probe a little bit. They might not be fine.
1: Probe a little bit. That's true. Especially if there's someone that you can indeed uh, get them to open up a little bit more for you. Patty, thank you so much for your kind words of encouragement and resources and sharing your journey with your children. I appreciate that so much.
0: Well, thank you, Sherry. I really enjoyed talking with you and I hope this can
1: help some people on their journey. Oh, it will. It definitely will. So thank you for being vulnerable.